Over 20,000 priests take part in this moving pageant of the sacred host, and the pilgrims, in a column 15 miles long, eight abreast, have marched down from Phoenix Park, converging around the high altar on O'Connell Bridge. the year of the Eucharistic Congress, the year Funafoil came to power for the first time and introduced a policy of economic protectionism. The aim, to develop Irish manufacturing industry behind tariff barriers. But barriers or none, many of the resulting new industries found they needed foreign skills to get on their feet. Dubarry's shoe factory in Ballinasloe was no exception. There was an enormous uh, unemployment problem in the town of Ballinasloe and it was decided by the local chamber of commerce to set up a shoemaking industry. Um, obviously this is part and parcel of the fact that there were so many important shoes being brought in and sold in the local area. Uh, the chamber of commerce set it up in 1937 and in 1938 um, a group of business people led by Jim Scott from the UK and mainly the Leicester area, which is a thriving shoemaking area in the UK, and saw potential here, and they purchased the factory. The expertise required uh, in the particular industry wasn't available locally. And as I said, the people who came in came from a very shoe-recognised area in the UK, being Leicester, which is still recognised as being one of the top areas for shoemaking in the UK. And with Mr Scott came the likes of Mr Argent and Mr Head, um, and Bert Boswell and people like that and quite a number of those families are still living in the locality It was always a noisy road really although <laughs> it was animals that were more noisy than the traffic because the animals weren't carried around in the lorries like they are now. And I can remember standing in my bedroom window in the middle of the night and watching the cattle coming down the road, so packed tight that their horns would be showing up in the moonlight. And all you could see were white, a field of white horns coming towards you. And they'd crash into, there was a big galvanised gate just, by, just beyond our front gate. And their horns would crash against this over so packed so tight. As they came down to the fair, the drovers would bring them in at night, you know, and put them in the fields or something till early morning and they'd start to sell then. But it was always noisy. And then there was the shunting from the trains, of course. We used to get a lot of that. You don't hear it so much with the diesel train, but when the old, the old steam trains were going it up and down, you know, it was very noisy. I don't know, there's something about Ireland. I, I don't think I'd, I'd ever want to go anywhere else. 
I mean, I, they wanted me to go back home after my husband died. But I said, no, I wanted to stay here. I wouldn't like to live anywhere else now. I came from Sutton in Surrey, and um, it was a nice little, nice little. Uh, well, I suppose you could they call it village those days, but we didn't think it was because it had a good big high street, and I remember it was a mile long, and it was just uh, all the shops right up to the top, and I can remember standing on the corner of the road on Derby Day. And we would see the king and queen go by in the uh, carriage, you know. My family were working people. My father was um, uh, had been a master baker. He was long retired at this time. And uh, I don't know what my mother was. But anyway, they were working people. And uh, we lived in a little house, three up three down kind of, kind of thing, you know, those days. We were very happy. My husband came from Cambridge and um, he he really came from, I suppose you'd say, fairly well-off family. And uh, he intended to be a doctor, but unfortunately he got mastoids and uh, he lost the hearing, his hearing when he was only about, it was before I knew him anyway. And uh, that made him stop to think whatever was he going to do. He couldn't be a surgeon, a doctor now. So he was either watch repairing or doing shoes. That seemed to be the only two things open. So he said he'd do the shoes. So that's how he learned. He, He had to go to college for three years to learn, go all through them that process he was what is called in the trade a clicker and uh, that is uh, one of the first things of course to cut out the uppers and get get them graded in their different sizes and then uh, there has to be someone under him doing the linings you know that kind of thing but he never did the linings he only cut out the uppers altogether and uh, he did that now well, he was doing it only about two years when the firm went broke that he was working for, so that meant he was unemployed then. I was very homesick. But uh, well, you have to get used to things when you start a new life. You come to a new place, you've just got to make up your mind to settle down. Although I remember one evening, particularly dreary old evening it was too, I I burst out crying for something or other and my husband got mad and he threw his wallet across the table and said, here, best thing you better do is to get your fare and go back home, so. And that kind of jerked me up and I, I, I didn't bother to cry anymore after that. But it really was, it 
you know, it's such a quiet place. I just couldn't get used to it. But uh, there were compensations there. It was lovely to go down by the river and sit on the bank in the river and hear nothing but the corn crake or what there was a kingfisher down in that river and every evening I used to wait for it to come scooping the river and it was lovely. to give a substantial permanent reduction in the annuities which the farmers were paying. I knew we were going to unite the Irish people and bring together the people who were marching together in the past, but I didn't think we'd reunite them so quickly as to get Mr. Cosgrave at last to see that the Irish tenant farmer couldn't afford to pay these annuities and send them over to England so easily as, as he was in the past. Fianna Fáil got into office last year by promises which they must themselves know were incapable of fulfilment. Now after ten months they have suddenly sprung a general election to the people pretending that they have performed all that they undertook. If in fact that were true, or if even a hundredth part of it were true, there need be no election at all, because no good citizen could oppose a government that had done so much in the short space of time as ten months as Fianna Fáil has claimed. We are engaged in what has been called a war with the British people. That war was started by the muddling bravado of the Fianna Fáil government. Working people are aware that more skill, more ability... More courage, more character are necessary for the conclusion of a fair agreement in the conference chamber and for the making of a wild speech at the street corner. My husband was unemployed for two years and uh, he really was beginning to get desperate because the money was so poor those days. I mean, you couldn't live, possibly live on it. And um, he went into the exchange to get his money one day and they said to him, would you be interested in working in Ireland? And his answer to that was, well, I was quite prepared to go up to Scotland to dig up the potatoes. What's on in Ireland? And he was told that uh, would he go to an office in Regent Street and uh, cut out uppers for ladies' uh, first-class shoes and do a morning's work there to show what he knew about cutting out shoes. So he went to this place, and I think it was a Mr Brady that owned this office, and uh, he went there and he saw the clicker's board out and a pile of skins and the clicker's knife, special... Knife they have a terribly sharp point. And um, he looked at it and uh, the man said to him, get on with it, do a morning's work for me. And uh, he was watching every movement he was making. And when he saw how Ted tackled the job, 
examined the work and stretched it in each direction to see how much stretch there was. And if now on a, on an animal those days you'd get the whole skin of an animal. That meant that you got the rough stuff at the top where the shoulders were, which in the trade would be used as the inner lining, and so would be cut. Wouldn't be used for top leather at all. It was only the best of it that was used for the uppers, and so you had to pick your pieces and try and get as many pairs out of the good part of it as you could. And that—that's a secret of being a good clicker to know which was your good leather and which wasn't. And he did a morning's work, and uh, he said, "Well, that's okay." He said, "You certainly know your job. Would you prepared be prepared to teach?" Someone that doesn't know the first thing about it, so he said, "Oh, he would," and he was just as uh, easy as that. He was given a one-way fare ticket for the Friday evenings mail train from Euston Station, London, to come to Barnsley and Galway, and he came. <laughs> Neither of us had heard of it. It wasn't even on the map. We looked up the map of Ireland, and we knew it was towards the western part. Athlone was marked all right, but not Ballinslow. The next, the next place, as far as I can remember, on those old maps, was um, you see the railway line coming down. They go around Mullingar, and uh, they, that was marked Mullingar. And then you see a little dot on the railway line, sort of. I suppose they were the little station. Then it was Athlone. Then you got little stations again to Galway. So we didn't know what was from here to Galway. Athlone, Woodlawn, and all those little stations—they're not used now. But um, um, I know it wasn't on the map, so we didn't know where it was. We only knew that he had to take that train. With, which was no problem at all because it was waiting. They got off the boat. You just got into that train at the end of the pier and came straight, stopped at your various stations and stopped at things and that was that. I don't think at that time, really, when we first came here, that uh, people really trusted us as English people. And yet when uh, we spoke to them, they never said anything about the English. But uh, you always felt a kind of awareness. And uh, you'd recall what you'd heard in England, never speak politics or religion to the Irish. That was all dinned into us from the time we were very small. And I could never understand it. And I can remember writing to my father that Christmas of 1937 now, the Christmas of 1937, that I wished he could have come over and joined in the fun that I was having among the Irish people. Then he would really know what Irish warmth was. 
And, of course, when he wrote back to me, my dad always used to write me lovely letters. And he said, write some more now and tell me how you feel. Are you sure you're happy? And I, I was able to truthfully tell him that there was nothing here for him to worry about, that I was much safer here than I was in England. And they became used to it then. And yet he had wor- really worried about me coming over. He really had, by his letters, I can, I can tell it now over the years, that that must have been the back of his mind that maybe someone would kind of hurt me because I was the youngest and I, I suppose I was the baby and there you are. And I always, I was always dad. But um, it was foolish, really. And I suppose that's how things were those days. I had the feeling that something had got to happen because he was getting into very low ebb, you know. And I mean, I was trying in my own way to help him and you know. When I got paid every month, I'd I'd send a bit to him so that he'd have a few cigarettes in his pocket or something like that. It wasn't easy at that time. I began to wonder, was he ever going to get another job? Because things were pretty bad in England then, you know. But um, it turned out all right. I mean, he he just took the ticket and came. He probably felt fortunate because he'd been unemployed for two years. Did you see that? That wasn't the same with me. You see, I'd only had the one job from the time I left school, and I was trained to be a nursery nurse. And uh, I uh, went to a house where two children, two children, eight and six, and a baby of three months were now. They had a very old nanny there but she wasn't able for looking after a new baby. So she could supervise all that I'd learned. I went to a proper college, you know, to learn everything and uh, about children and everything. And she used to supervise everything that I did, but she couldn't do any carrying or anything like that. And I'd prepare everything for the child, baby bath and everything, but it was nanny that had to bath the child. But it was me that had to do the the dirty job and um, I only ever had the one job and I stayed there until the boy who was six at the time I went there until he went to Cambridge to university but uh, and I lived out in uh, uh, Horsham Dorking near Dorking as I and I used to come home about two or three times a week, you know. But it was a lovely old house. I had a lovely time there. But uh, I would never have left it at all. It didn't bother me about getting married or anything like that. I wouldn't have left them. They, they were family. It, it wasn't a job to me. It was enjoying myself. Lovely time.
But as regards coming to Ireland, it was only the fact that he got the job here. And when he wrote, he said they couldn't possibly, it was too lonely, couldn't possibly live here. And I, I, with the thoughts of the two years' unemployment behind me, I said to him, don't leave the job if you like the job. Stay and give it a chance. And he said, no, he, he didn't feel that he could spend a winter over here without me. There was no one that he really understood. So he said he had to. He, uh, they had to write everything down. They wanted him to really understand that something was important, you know. So um, I must have been a very simple kind of a person. No, I don't really think so. I just took it as a matter of fact. He had a job here, and it was my duty to come. Because when all said done, we'd been engaged for the two years. We knew we were going to get married. And I'd been saving and making and and all the bits and bobs for the bottom drawer, you know. And uh, there was an awful lot there. So it might as well be used. They came over. When abroad the captain shook a sword across the sea, rolling glory on the water, I had a mind of brood. Ted came over June. 1937, and then uh, we went back to England and we married in August, and then I came over in October. I couldn't get away from the job I was doing, so uh, I came in October. Yeah, I remember being sitting. I can see myself now sitting. There were three seats sat side, three seats sat side, and I was there in the middle of two men that were asleep from the time they sat in the carriage and the time they got out at Holyhead. They just sat there, lumped each side. I mean, I couldn't move, but um, it was a gorgeous night. And uh, my husband met me at the station at Holyhead. He said, I'll be on the platform now. He said, um, You'll be all right, he said. It's a big platform, so just don't stray from where the train stops. So uh, I could see him there. And it, it was a beautiful night. We sat up on the, right up on the top deck, and I had sandwiches and hot thermos and everything, you know, I'd brought from home. And uh, it was a lovely journey. Then, of course, being a night time, it didn't seem such a long journey somehow. We were down here about half ten the next morning. In those days, when you got off the boat, you'd go right along the pier and get straight on the train. And uh, it, it it did stop at Western Road, but you didn't get off there and change like you did in the later years. You went straight through to Galway, and it was uh, took about four hours at that time, and the old steam train. But um, it was a nice journey. You know, there were so many, so many open places when it became dawn then and you saw everything begin to come before you.
we we stopped Banslow, stopped the Backlow and then Banslow, you know, on his way, and uh, Mullingar. That was the route, the long route, you know, not the poor Darlington route that is now. But uh, no, it stopped at Banslow. We stopped at every station those days. There were lots of little stations, real small stations, and you'd only see like a, a one house and the level crossing and. But you stop there. You'd stop there. Somebody'd get off or somebody'd get on. Used to be quite busy. Surprising. And we used to have um uh Oh, I think there were more trains really that came through Banslow to Banslow in the old days than they do now. My large case went on the back of the bike and we walked right through the town, you see. And as we were walking through the town, I saw quite a lot of the shops were half empty. And I I said to my husband, that didn't seem to be any trade here. What was the factory? How was the factory going? So he said, well, I don't think it's doing awfully well, but maybe it'll pick up. So we really came on a shoestring. I mean, because I would have hated had to turn around and gone home again. Because it would have been easy enough for me to have gone back to the job I was at. But um, I don't think the family would have approved of that somehow if I'd gone back. But anyway, it was a very, very poor town. But then... On the other hand, they'd say that it were far worse because we used to have the good big fair days and the cattle. I never saw a hated cow. And when I first started going shopping, I'd see cows coming towards me, so I'd jump a, a wall to get out of the cow's way and turn around and discover there were about half a dozen behind me, so I didn't know what to do to have to get down on the road again. I had to get used to them. And go past them. But, of course, after a little while, I kind of got used to them. But um, my husband used to laugh. I could see him now standing there. I'd suddenly disappear. I'd gone over the hedge. I'd seen the cows coming over the wall. Looking back, we were, from a certain point of view, in a favourable position for securing results quickly when we came into office five years ago. For a century, the energies of our people had been directed mainly to the production of cattle, bacon, butter and eggs for the British market. During all that time, our manufacturing industries were being more and more neglected until finally they occupied an altogether secondary place. The producers of other countries supplied us with most of the things we required, and not with manufactured goods only, but with agricultural produce as well. Our farming had, in fact, become mainly pastoral. The proportion of our land under tillage was, in comparison with other European countries, exceptionally small. In such circumstances, it was obvious that a policy of encouragement of tillage, protection of the home market for our own agricultural produce, combined with a program for the development of manufacturing industries, 
could not fail to produce a remarkable change. Our position on the industrial side was the very reverse of that of the industrialized countries whose problems arose from overproduction and a shrinking market. We pointed out all this during our election campaign. On coming into office, we had our general plans ready. They had, of course, to be developed in detail and the machinery erected for putting them into effect. The anticipated results followed almost at once. And now, after five years, we have reached the point at which there is already a fair balance between agriculture and the other industries. At least, the completely lopsided economy of the past has gone. When I got off the train there, it just seemed all space. Everywhere seemed so spacious. There were no cement paths now. Uh, it was a mud path past these six houses, these six empty thatch houses, right down almost, I should say, to the convent in the town before the cement path came along. So you can tell it was really kind of very primitive in lots of ways. We didn't live in the town. We didn't live in this house then. We were out at a place called Beach Lawn and we had paraffin lamps there and, and the big outside loo with the 40-foot drop. i never forget that. I used to hate going out there in the winter. The lady that we rented the rooms off, she was a, she was a, she was a real love. She was quite old, almost. she must have been about 70. But she used to keep a few cows and the chickens and... Um, when uh, I went in the nursing home to have Jerry the following year, she looked after my husband as if he was her son, you know, got his breakfast all day, got off to work on time and everything. Those days they used to have the candles all in the window for Christmas Eve and they'd have the room lit up the window and uh, that was lovely, going back through the lane, back to Beach Lawn that first winter see all the cottages with the candles and everything. Then when we reached Beach Lawn, uh, the lady that owned the house, she'd put big candlesticks in our windows as well as her own, you know. And my husband promptly put them all out because he said, we, you know, he was afraid they'd go out in the night because something would have a fire or something in the night. And I always remember poor, poor soul. Egan, she was so disgusted, you know. She said, one doesn't do that. So I had to go back and explain to him that he'd have to leave them alight. I don't think he'd slept Christmas Eve thinking about these candles, you know, in the windows. The police redoubling their cordon. Mr Chamberlain rather like the figure of the king himself the royal garden party, shaking hands and shaking hands. And here he is at the microphone. Here is Mr. Chamberlain. There's only two things I want to say. 
First of all, I've received an immense number of letters during all these anxious times, and so has my wife. Letters of support and approval and gratitude. And I can't tell you what an encouragement that has been to me. I want to thank the British people for what they have done. Next, and next I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. There was never any feeling that we were taking Irish jobs because they realised that uh, men like my husband now had left their country to teach them so that they could start on the industrial line because that, that was really new to people here. I mean, they'd been all farming and now they were coming into industry and they knew there was money, more money in industry if you could get into it. And the boys were like that. Boys and girls were really lined up for those jobs, you know. I mean, it was no, no. Uh, it wasn't like um, oh, well, there would only be special ones. And it was a case of first come, first serve, and see how you did. They didn't earn very much when they were learning, certainly. But at least they had a chance. Some of them were really worked there now, and actually, it was only two years ago that one boy retired from my husband teaching him in about 1940. That's a long time ago. And he retired from the factory then. And he worked there, made good, he got good money, you know, then. No, there would never was any resentment at all. I am speaking you to you tonight because I thought you would expect me to. I have been too busy to prepare any corrected manuscript, so I must speak to you from notes. I know you will understand. You know from the news bulletins to which you have been listening that the great European powers are again at war, that this would be the end has appeared almost inevitable for months past. Such an escape as we had a year ago could hardly be expected to occur twice. Yet, until a short time ago, there was hope. But now hope is gone, and the people of Europe are plunged once more into the misery and anguish of war. Noting the march of events, your government decided its policy early last spring and announced its decision to you and to the world. We resolved 
that the aim of our policy would be to keep our people out of the war. As I said in the Doyle, with our history, with our experience of the last war, and with a part of our country still unjustly severed from us, we felt that no other decision and no other policy was possible. I felt, I felt very worried about my family at home because they were in the, uh, the actual position where they lived would be where the planes would come over to bomb London. And I, I sat down after I came back from church and I wrote to uh, my sister and said, would she send her little girl? And then I wrote to the other sister and I said, would you send your, she was only a baby, would you send her, and my brother's wife, her baby was only about the same age as Julia. And um, no, of course they couldn't think of parting with the children. But I, I would have had them over here, the three children, three little girls. Would have been great company for Jared, as it happened, because there was no other baby here. It was it was most extraordinary. There wasn't a feeling of war at all, not until we couldn't go over to England for our holidays. We used to go to Connemara, and I remember, and when we went through Galway to catch the bus to Connemara, we saw a few cement stands along the the middle of the road and they were supposed to be uh, put there so that tanks if they landed would, wouldn't be able to get along the streets and that's the only defence it appeared that Ireland had in any seaside town and we were sitting on the beach at Connemara one day and would you believe a German submarine surfaced not very far from us. It was quite distinguishable. You know the swastika on the conning tower. And it stayed there, and I suppose it was surveying all the scene in the quiet. And there was only us three on the beach, Ted, Jared, and myself. And we were just sitting on the beach making sandcastles. And nobody else in the wide world, they could have let, as easy as anything. But that's when I realised there was a war on. Not, not um, Germany calling, Germany calling, because I knew that was only a lot of rot. But when I actually saw that submarine come up, then I realised really Ireland could have been taken so easily. And I suppose poor old Dev would have been blamed for it. And he was such a kind man, all he wanted was his, his people out of danger. Don't let me beat thee to the Germans When our victory is ultimately won it was just those nasty Nazis who persuaded them to fight. And their Beethoven and Bach are really far worse than their bite. Let's be meek to them and turn the other cheek to them and try to bring out their latent sense of fun. 
Let's give them full air parity and treat the rats with charity. But don't let me beat me to the hunt. Quite a lot of people here were pro-German. Now, uh, one woman, I remember her saying, during the Blitz, she was saying that the English people must have uh, done something dreadful to God, that they should be punished that way, you see, by the Germans. So I said, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I said, that never occurred to me, that they're being punished. I said, wait a bit until the war ends and see who wins it. Because I was trying to keep in my mind this don't, no politics, no religion. But um, then when Dunkirk came and the invasion of Normandy and everything else, you see, I said, I wonder who it was that did something so wicked to God now. So she just looked at me and she said, well, it'd make you wonder, wouldn't it? And that's how it ended. Nothing else was said. We both knew what we meant. Oh, no, I still, still feel English because they wanted me to become a citizen. And the answer I made to the person was, however long you lived in England, would you become English? Oh, sure, no. I said, okay, gotcha. And that's right, no. I know I have Irish blood in me. My mother's father was an Irishman. But, um, and there are special bits in Ireland that I, memories, of course, you always treasure very much. And I've made great friends here. Really, really good friends. Alas, a lot of them are gone now, but still, you don't forget their friendship. And I wouldn't ever dream of going back to England. Because this is home. This is home. 